0: Check one, check
1: two. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tim? That's not a tough act to follow.
0: Nice. Uh, What, my bow? Yeah, the bow. Thank you very much. Deep and good. I danced for a while.
1: (laughs) Did you really? I did. I don't have that on my question list.
0: I danced, uh, I was a second best all-around dancer in my eighth grade cotillion.
1: (laughs) We'll get back to that. Uh, thanks for coming out to the City Arts and Lectures tonight. This is Stephen Colbert. Obviously, you know him because you're heroes. <laughs> Anybody who laughed at heroes watches the show. Uh, I'm Tim Gidman, the television critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> wow. So thanks for coming out tonight. We have a couple of quick uh, housekeeping things. Uh, there's books in the lobby. They're all signed, and they benefit 826 Valencia Scholarship Program. And tonight's event actually benefits 826 Uh, Valencia Scholarship Program, which is partially help-funded by The Chronicle. And then this is also another housekeeping note. For those going to uh, Thursday's Philip Seymour Hoffman show, it's at the Davies Symphony Hall. It's not here. So don't show up out front. Go next door. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to San Francisco. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be back. And when you were here last, you were with Groundlings. Uh, with the Second ground? City. No, I was with uh, kind of Amy bro.
0: Sedaris and Paul Daniello. Right. We were reading our... Yes, absolutely. I'll tell them <laughs> that you said so.
1: Tell, tell that story.
0: Yeah, I'll pass that on. <laughs> um, uh, we were here uh, reading Wigfield, which is our mm-hmm. book. Um, yes, one person read it. Who, yes. who read Wigfield? Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, no, Did look. not play this theater. Not a theater this beautiful. This is a beautiful theater. This is amazing. And, you
1: know, we wanted to tell you that... Uh, um, uh, Stephen's show sold out almost immediately. This, this, this benefit sold out almost immediately. Uh, two interesting notes about that. You were signed before you got the uh, rapport.
0: A year ago, yeah. Right. About a year ago I agreed to do so this. So these people came out essentially before you were a megastar. Right. I would never have done this right. if I had known. <laughs> just how unbelievably famous well, I am. Well,
1: we should have fun tonight. This be a people good are lucky night. I'm a man of my word.
0: No, I'm thrilled to be here. This is great.
1: And another thing too uh, about this fun Saturday night we're going to have, you could have filled this, people don't know this, but uh, the tickets sold out so fast, he could have filled this theater three or four times over, so consider yourself lucky tonight.
0: I I scalped a few tickets out front. Yeah. I had $1,500. That (laughs) That man right there.
1: We'll make sure it's worth it. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, we have so much to talk about, and we'll have questions for everybody uh, okay. at the end. I know go ahead. My life's questions. an open book. Great. Let's talk it. I'm not afraid uh, of you. Let's go back, though. Uh, I want to <laughs> talk about because there's so much to catch up to your new show, Absolutely, which is doing fabulously, yeah. by the
0: way. Uh, you grew up in South Carolina. I did. I grew, up, um, I grew up on James Island, South Carolina, which was a little... Wow, wow. you're kidding. James Island. <laughs> James Island, South Carolina. I grew up on Willow Lake Road, which was a dirt road mm-hmm. on a little, uh, was a little... It was a little, like... Spring-fed creek that went into like uh, kind of a swampy pond, and we had like you grew alligators. I yep. grew up on a dirt road, exactly. And um, this is all an act, you know. <laughs> right. Get me drunk, and and I'll talk like somebody from *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Nice. <laughs> I turn into Boo Radley if you get me drunk <laughs> enough. I hang out in the basement, and I'll stab you in the thigh with a pair of scissors. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I grew up on uh, I grew up on a dirt road in South Carolina, and I had ten brothers and sisters. And, um, uh, and the youngest of 11. I'm you the were, youngest yeah. of 11, right, exactly. Jimmy, Eddie, Mary, Billy, Margaret, Tommy, Jay, Lulu, Paul, Peter, and Stephen. Yeah. Biblical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely biblical. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Now, uh, was that, how hard is that? I mean, now I'm the youngest of five. I know how that, that can be difficult. You're the youngest of 11. Do your parents even know your name? Fantastic.
0: Really? Yeah. My sisters say that they're surprised I ever learned to walk <laughs> because they carried me around everywhere I go. I was like, you know, my three, my three sisters, you know, I had, they had a live baby doll. So they thought my legs would become vestigial, <laughs> you know.
1: What's the gap between 1 and um, 11,
0: age was. 45 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's... Yep. They called my mom Iron Womb. Wow, that is... <laughs> yeah. I hope she's... I certainly <laughs> hope she's listening to this on the radio. And I... And I yeah, that's... Nice. Was 20 years. 20 years between me and the eldest, Jimmy.
1: That is amazing. Yeah. Wow. Right. Okay. Well, we'll get to the Catholic part later. The, the Catholic. Mm, yeah. Not the Catholic. No, the Catholic? Catholic part. Lower. Right. lower seat.
0: We'll deal with our catholicity. Uh, yeah. So, uh, was in Latin? F- I hope. Right. It'll all be Latin. Because I'm, I'm Larry Gibson on that. One. Oh yeah.
1: First 45 minutes English, then the last part is Latin. In Latin, exactly. Or else it's not a sacrament. <laughs> <laughs> was your family? Now there's a lot of professionals in your family. how much? How much? like performers, how much entertainment was in your home? My
0: mom, well, we were humorocracy, like the funniest person in the room was king at any one time. And uh, I am, ask my brothers and sisters, they'll tell you I am not as funny as they are. And my wife says, why come you get so quiet around them? And it's because I think they're so funny that I just clam up when they start talking. And they they also insist that I clam up so that they can talk. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Big Shot, you're not so funny. I remember when you used to stand in the toilet.
1: <laughs> yeah, family is a great equalizer. So, uh, yeah, Do you yeah. get back to see them much or, they, or do they come out to see no, the show? No, I or? don't talk
0: to them anymore. No. no, I am a big star now, right. if you haven't noticed. During I'm on da- basic cable. <laughs> right. exactly. so during
1: the Daily Show years, you did talk to them
0: but not the report. It started, you know, drop off during the Daily right. Show years. Yeah, If the show hadn't worked out, I would have gotten much closer to them. No, we get the same thing weddings and funerals. You know, we see each other.
1: No, is the, no, but is there a sense in the family that they're surprised that you, of all people, became sort of an entertainer if there were other funnier people in the Colbert family?
0: No, I don't know. I don't know if there's a su- surprise. Um, I think they were all a little shocked that I wanted to do it because they're, you know, perfectly nice people with actual jobs. Right. And for years, they were a little worried. I mean, I'm being the youngest of 11, you always are 10 to them you know, because right. you, at the point they reach maturity, you freeze at whatever age you were. And so, you know, the last one I was 10 by the time that they were, you know, hit the point at which they looked at me as a little puke. And, um, and so, they're, I think they're more surprised that I am 41 and have three children than, you know, that you know, I'm mildly, uh, you know, I have mild notoriety as a comedian. That I ever, like, got older than 10. Right. That I can drive and shave, I think, <laughs> is a bigger shock to them. I wondered about the shave. art. You're very clean-cut,
1: you're very... Um...
0: Yeah, well, I have to keep, like, my head and my clothing structured because my physique is so vague and unstructured <laughs> that it actually... it supplies, like, I'm trying to... like, superstructure. I'm trying to imply, like, some sort of physical order underneath these clothes <laughs> with, like, crisp hair and everything, yeah. You
1: know, there's a lot of... No- I, I want to go back and, and, and tap into some of this, but I, I have to get to this right off the bat. Why do you hate bears?
0: I'm not saying that I don't hate bears. Well, Tim, my question would be, why aren't you helping me with this bear problem? Are you on the bear side? I don't
1: like bears either.
0: But but yours seems to be an obsession. Uh, Bears came about on the show because in the very first, I think the very first threat down we did in rehearsals, the threat was actually alligators. And 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 we it worked really well, but we thought the story was like a week old by the time we got to the very first show. <laughs> and we said, you know, let's see if we can find another animal that would fit in here. And somebody says, well, there's this bear that did this terrible thing to someone. And, uh, and I forgot what it was even now at this point, but I said, fine, bears. Because I, I also have recurring nightmares about bears, that they're between me and something I want. I mean, it can be like between me and my children or between me and a sandwich. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a bear and they're dancing bears and they kind of do this, you know, they're like all, they're all kind of sweet and funny. But I know if I get close enough, they're going to they are gonna take my head off because they have cheetah speed. Also, I was told that by a, 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 someone, a, a bear keeper, uh, that, that they, I was standing in front of a 1200 pound Kodiak bear. And, and he said, you know, his paws have cheetah speed. <laughs> he said, if he decided to take your head off, I wouldn't even know it till your head was gone. Well, was Get like, closer to the bear so I can take your picture.
1: Also, one of the great things about the bear joke on the rapport is that, uh, as you know, as a comic, that uh, the callback is so, such a great device in comedy. I mean, even, even if it's not funny the first time, about the 53rd time you use it, it's pants wetting.
0: Right. It, it, uh, we have a problem with our seats. We have to <laughs> wrap them in plastic. Uh, You know, it's great. Yeah, it does. It does, you know, when you have a pattern, when you have a, you know, that it's nice about doing a character on the show is that the character does, you know, half of the work for me. We can do the satire about what's happening in the news or the way the news is recorded. But then there's also the part of the show that the audience just enjoys seeing uh, an expression of the character. Right. Like his distrust of reference books or bears. (laughs) Right. Which, but, and, that but the hand, bear is hand. not
1: really rooted in something where you went out in the dirt road you lived on in the Bacala Creek and got attacked.
0: No, but I have to tell you, my father was a doctor, and uh, I had, for some reason I had, this, I had a fear of bears when I was a child, and my father said to me, well, you know, modern medicine is so great that even if you were mauled by a bear, <laughs> <laughs> we could probably save your life. And in, rather than like banking down my fear of bears, it actually just, it, he kind of implied there were bears out in the woods. And he had thought about it and don't worry, we'll rush you to the hospital and I'll do the surgery myself. But I really had a sense as a child, like I would go, and, and there was a lot of woods, I mean there was a very undeveloped uh, uh, part of the, uh, the, the Charleston area when I was a kid. And I really had a fear, like I'd have to tell myself, it's okay if a bear mauls me, dad will fix me.
1: Well, yeah, as they tell you, for parents, that every moment is a learning moment. So did you take anything from your dad's advice about bears? And are you that same kind of dad? Have you, have you told
0: any of your kids any scary stories that have now tormented them? Or? I mean, have I ever uh, told them something that it was to calm them down but actually <laughs> right, right. instilled a lifelong fear? <laughs> yes. uh-huh. It's too young to know. No, okay. I'll wait till they call me in tears from college blaming me. But they're okay with teddy bears? They're, they don't, it's not their the past, past No, I don't want yeah. the kids watch the show, really. Because, I mean, I'm... I mean, they, every so often they can, they can watch something. My wife will say, is this appropriate? And, uh, and I'll say, mm, the first five minutes is. Um, because and not so much that I, like, swear. Can we swear tonight? Are we allowed sure. to swear? I think so. Tinny didn't say we couldn't. Poop. It will be on the I, um, radio. <laughs> It's not so much that I swear on the show, but I don't want my children to perceive me as insincere. And the <laughs> character is... You know, if you don't want to say, you know, good night, honey, I love you, and they're like, I get it. <laughs> Dad, that is so dry. I good stuff. Good stuff. Write it up.
1: When you, uh, we'll skip sort of the high school years, or I want to skip and, and get to the. the You're skipping season. my high school yeah, years? Yeah, well, there's some darkness there, but All we'll right. go to the. Uh but there was some darkness there. There was some darkness you know, there. We don't need to get into that. But you afraid? Are you afraid of the I'm afraid dark? to go there. It's like a bear.
0: All right. But I thought we were going to get into some issues tonight, Tim. I was going to bring it. I, was I, just bring the 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 constant, I just saw the constant gardener, <laughs> and I want to spend tonight really sticking it to the pharmaceutical companies, because <laughs> uh, I'm hideously depressed. I'm on board. That's a good Saturday night. Yeah, so it really let's just,
1: is. <laughs> let's just talk about world poverty. Uh, but, how, but just quickly, in, in, in high school, though, I, were you a popular guy or were you I was down not lasers? a
0: popular guy in high school. Mm-hmm. I was um, beyond the Oort belt. Uh, <laughs> some Oort belt reference fans out there. Mm-hmm. I was beyond, like, Pluto's orbit in terms right. of the society of my school.
1: Now, a lot of times, people who are not popular are, are, you know, they they get into something else. I mean, were you the class clown? Because this is going, or did you just? I know first, there was a, I was bit a class of punching bag, and then
0: later on. I became the class clown. Oh, you were a punching bag because when they were laughing, they couldn't throw the punches. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, be, I be, actually first I became, um, um, first I smoked a lot of pot. <laughs> Hi, mom. And right. and 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 then I then I didn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and that's how I got to know, you know, sort of the, the people half in right. the society of my high school, right. because they were sort of out of the society of my high school because they had started smoke pot. It was their way out of it and my way in. Mm-hmm. Then I kind of passed through them into the society of my high school, kind of waved at each other over the bong, and then I, <laughs> I managed to work my way into the society of the high school. And, but, and then by making jokes, it really was. Right. I got to know, like, all my friends were, like, you know, jocks and that kind of crowd because I made them laugh.
1: Did you have a blazer and glasses in high school, too?
0: Absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, I went to a school. I had uh, I tortoiseshell glasses, and I, I wore a blue blazer, and I wore a regimental striped tie, and khaki pants, and docks, uh, penny loafers, and uh, argyle socks. Chicks love that. that. Mm-hmm. It's, very, it's a very hot outfit. Now, there was a South Carolina. I mean, that's, that's just everybody wore that. There was. Wow. People are worried about me backstage, evidently. <laughs> keep him hydrated! <laughs> you know his kidneys! Beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was just like everybody looked like that. Right. I mean, there was, no, there was no option. Because it was the school or it was because it was... The whole society, mm-hmm. I mean, Charleston, South Carolina, is just like frozen in time. Oh. Or it was when I was a kid. Everybody looked the same, everybody did the same thing. So it's not Hate Street. What wasn't, it's not like Hate Street in San Francisco. Uh, not quite as free-thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's an inorganic rock of ultra conservatism.
1: When did you? Uh, now you weren't a popular kid, but did, did that also you that, that help develop your sense of humor? I'm sure, but did that also put you on this path? Which I love this little path that you've got of this sort of this sci-fi geekdom thing going on. Is
0: that really where it started? Was well, sci-fi geekdom? Because I, I know. Oh, I was a Dungeons and Dragons you... fan when I was a kid. You were
1: early adopter of Dungeons and Dragons.
0: Well, my father and two of my brothers died when I was ten. On the day of their funeral, I had a terrible headache, and my brother Eddie, who was my second oldest brother, put me in a side room at his house up in Washington, because my brother and my father were born, uh, were buried in Annapolis, and. I had a terrible headache, and he put me in this room. And I looked over on the shelf, and there was a book that said "The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton" by Larry Niven, science fiction. And I picked it off the shelf, and I read it. and My headache went away, and I sort of escaped into science fiction. And I read a science fiction book or a fantasy book a day wow. for the next eight years, and um, it, that was a direct response to sort of the, my, the grief that struck my family. From the they died in a plane crash when I was a kid, and um, uh, so. Th- that kind of led to my geekdom because I completely retreated from the world right
1: how, how does a how does a family of, of eleven how does how does a tragedy like that change the the family dynamics
0: um, i'm listening to an angel right now <laughs> very musical voice um, well uh, you know the shepherd will be struck, and the sh- sheep will be scattered um, you know my father died and then you know, people people like got married in a hurry to try right. to find some structure in their life. Right. You know, people kind of dropped out of things or joined things, and um and uh I I'd say you know thirty nineteen seventy four thirty one years later I'm not exactly sure how it affects it because it still still affects it on a daily basis. Yeah, that never goes away. It happened yeah. in my family as well. So
1: yeah. But when you got out of high school and, and as you moved on, you went to Northwestern, you sort of... First, I
0: went to Hampton-Sydney College in right. Hampton-Sydney, Virginia. I went mm-hmm. to an all-male college for two years and studied philosophy. And um, that was really conservative. Mm-hmm. That made Charleston seem like a love-in. And <laughs> now, was it you... Specifically there for, for philosophy, that was your major? That was my major, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Why did you choose that? Oh, because... Uh, because my dad liked philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I suppose I was trying to find the father. And so I studied that for a few years, and then I found that very depressing. And uh, I had, uh, we had a, I had a class called Western Man my freshman year, and we read from like, the Iliad through like Locke and Hobbes. There was one question at the end of the year, which was, is it better to know or not to know? <laughs> Defend your answer. <laughs> And did you? And now I think it was like, oh, it's, it's it's you know it's better to know. Obviously, I mean, it worked out for Oedipus.
1: Right. So you graduated there from? A, were you a philosopher king when you graduated?
0: No, I was a fucking mess. <laughs> Two years of studying philosophy, and I weighed one hundred and thirty-five pounds. Really? Yeah, I weighed. Uh, forty pounds less than I do now. And I am not a strapping, you know, he man. Yeah, there's not a lot is. of extra weight on no, you. No, no, I was absolutely gray. I was absolutely green. Was it
1: was it you were just grinding away? At I, that was, I just mean, was incredibly depressed.
0: Yeah. And um Good you know, major. And and then I thought, well if I'm going to pick my liver this hard, I might as well get something from it. Um I'll be introspective in kind of a Stanislavskian way and, and and so I'll go study theater. Right. And that's then I replied to Northwestern Theater School and thank Pete, I got in. Right, which is a great school. Yeah, absolutely. A fantastic
1: I'll school. I'll pass that one along, along as well. <laughs> <laughs> to Pete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, while you are at Northwestern, I mean, I know that you uh, talked before, you're not really a joiner, but you, and, and that group is very, and that theater community is very tight there. What were you doing? Were you coming in and out of it, learning little bits of it, or was it an
0: immersion type thing? Total you? immersion, because they have a three-year program, and I had to do it in two years, because mm-hmm. I'd come there as a junior. And I, as, a, as a result, I didn't really make very many friends, because I was doing, you know, almost like a double course load and then I had to do all my crews in 2 years. And so I pretty much, you know, worked, you know, uh, morning to night for, right. for 2 years and then just so I could get out of there in in time and graduate, you know, in 4 years, which I did not. You you <laughs> <laughs> ask my mom, I graduated from Northwestern and my sisters and my mom, they're like, "Let's see the diploma." And I open it up and it literally says see me. <laughs> Where the diploma should be. <laughs> Kathy Martin, Dean of the School of Speech.
1: Did you get it eventually?
0: I did, yeah. I got it six months later. Excellent.
1: Yeah. Because you could go back and get like an honorary one right now, like, like that.
0: Yeah.
1: If they're listening, I'd go for it. So right now, you'd get that. The doctorate. Uh, All for padding my resume. <laughs> exactly. Now, when you, you must have, that must have struck something with you when you got there, because you uh, you talked about immersion. Was there something that you found in uh, the theater experience and sort of... Uh, acting that, that you could lose yourself? Because you said you were, you were a good student, but you weren't a great student. I was a terrible student. <laughs> okay, I was trying to quote that.
0: I barely graduated from high school. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, is that, I, I don't want to interject here, but is that because you, the subject matter didn't grasp? Because you're, you're obviously in all of grounded high school? in
0: stuff. In all of high school? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was after my father and my brothers died, nothing seemed important. Oh. It seemed, it seemed uh, I mean, I was just a kid, but everything seemed very uh, childish to me. And so I just, I just read books, and the only reason I graduated is that I incidentally learned what I needed to pass the test without ever doing homework or without reading anything they wanted. Right. But I just, I just read so much of what I wanted that, you know, it kind of, in the, in the borders, in the shadowlands of what I was reading was the information they thought I needed.
1: Right, so this wasn't even, this wasn't, this isn't an intelligent thing. This was, you were just, you know, that tragic event sort of, Spun you a little bit on at high school and you, you didn't absolutely yeah, the sure. material. yeah, so when you got to a northwestern was this something that like okay This I can get into and
0: yeah, I mean I, I I I I loved it first of all my core curriculum was out of the way and I just did theater right. for you know for those two years um, It was fantastic and I had a teacher who was a, a wonderful teacher um, named several wonderful teachers But my you have one teacher who kind of stays mm-hmm. with you the entire time and that was Ann Woodworth, and she was great. And mm. She was very loving, and she uh, insisted that I get into counseling or else she wouldn't teach me. What, she made what, me go to a therapist, or she wouldn't teach me anymore.
1: Because of the incident, or were there other things?
0: I tried to break a man's hand on stage.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: so yeah. yeah. Do you have a we shirt? were improvising, and he pissed me off. <laughs> and I was standing on a, on a box. And he was standing behind me, and he was flicking me right here. Oh. And I grabbed his hand with his fist over his hand. I grabbed it so hard that it made his f- it go into a fist. And I, and I, I stood on the, on the box, and I held it over my shoulder, and I just fell <laughs> forward and broke my fall with his fist. <laughs> so uh, He's fine. <laughs> what about me? I was the tortured one.
1: I'm guessing, of all the things that we were going to get into tonight, your anger wasn't going to be one of them.
0: No, you have a short fuse. Not anymore not, not anymore. not anymore. Not anymore. I did. I did at the time. Actually, I actually had a super long fuse until I inappropriately ignited, and then, <laughs> then I did. Then I did stuff you just can't say I'm sorry about. <laughs> but not anymore. So, and and she, she made
1: you get in there
0: and she, do that. She absolutely. She said, "Take some action, or else I won't teach you." And you did it because I you did. loved acting. I just loved it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I loved it. I just, it. For me, the reason I wanted to become a performer is that after two years of like, studying philosophy and I'd done a little bit of performing in high school and I'd gotten involved with the Spoleto Festival. There's a festival in Italy called mm-hmm. the Festival dei Duimondi Mondi and Giancarlo Minotti, who was the director of that and he's an opera composer and, and I believe he's still alive, um, founded uh, brought the festival to Charleston as a sister festival. And one of the you know, early years that they were there, they, hadn't, they had a play they'd cast in New York and someone had gotten sick. And they needed to cast a teenage, gay leper. <laughs> yeah.
1: Don't stop me. And
0: my uh, choir teacher said, "What about Stephen?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I auditioned for the maestro, and I got the I got the. The gig, as we call it in the biz, <laughs> by the biz I mean the industry. How do you play a gay leper? Um, I mean, uh, how do you go uh, A regular leper, <laughs> right? Um, but gayer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and, and I got to know him, and so then I was interested in theater, and I found that the only thing I actually worked very hard at was doing plays, right. and I thought that that was evidence that I should do more of it. You know, I'd be a fool. You know, wisdom is lost on those who won't act uh, uh, on evidence. And so the evidence was uh, that I should just do this. And I have no regrets.
1: Right. I love the story about how uh, um, when you're getting into your career and you were at Second City, that the, the, the really how you got there was you, had, you went to Europe, you toured around Europe, and you had said you came back literally penniless. Yeah, I think you had nothing in your pocket. I had a zero dollars. But you had a friend who worked at... Uh, she worked at
0: the box office at Second City. And she, and, and she got you a job there? She said, Oh, you can just answer phones, you know, until you find something to do. And then I, I answered phones there, and she said, um, you know, classes are free here if you work here. And so I took some classes, and I'd always been, I'd been one of those improvisers. Chicago's got a large improv community, and there are different camps within the improv community, because there's, there's no place that has this many improvisers in the United States. Uh, it, as opposed to, like, there's instead of, like, pockets of improv. Improv is, like... The right. biggest thing in theater is second there. Right. And any night of the week, you can go up and improvise and, and you know, try to you know, work on your chops. And uh, I had been part of the sort of pure improv crowd, the Herald long form, you know, montage, one word. We do one-act plays. We don't speak. God does. We just open our mouths kind of improv people. I <laughs> had a beard. And... Um, and uh, and so we looked down at Second City because they were like, well, they, they sell, they do jokes every night, <laughs> and they—that's not real improv. Right. They're pleasing people. <laughs> <laughs> and then I and then I got there and I I took classes with people and I found out that the people there really cared about theater. They looked at it as theater and they were doing scene work, and they were pleasing people because they were very funny, and um and then uh, I just. I got to know people there, and I was lucky enough to be invited to be a member of one of the companies.
1: Well, Second City uh, obviously has turned out just um, an, an endless string of really talented people. When you were there, did you have the feeling like oh, I'm going to be one? Of, I'm going to be on that train, and I'll make it, or did you just say? No, I never had that sense. Really? No. Did you? Was it because you were too not worrying about stardom, or was it, or, or was there something about like? How am I going to look at all these talented people around me?
0: No. Well, first of all, I didn't know anything about Second City before I worked there. Interesting. I mean, before I was answering the phones, I, 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 other than like what I heard from people in the improv community. But before I came to Chicago and when I was at Northwestern, Second City was nowhere on my radar because I had no intention of being a comedian. I had an intention of being Hamlet, you know, not playing Hamlet, being Hamlet. Right. <laughs> got it. You know, I got it. Let me share my misery with you, world. <laughs> And uh, you know, I you know, I had a beard, and I, I wore a lot of black, and uh, or at least one color at a time—all green, all black, all red. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> and uh, and and so I had no. And when I got there, I didn't have a sense of this is what I was going to do. I quit four times to go do straight theater in Chicago, like you know, small black box theater mm. or small equity theater in Chicago. Because I was still sort of, well, I really kind of still want to do Hamlet, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, or, or just kind of be Hamlet. And but what happened was, is I, f- I, found that I found comedy would pay me for one thing, and because Second City had the best equity contract in Chicago, it was mm-hmm. better than the Goodman right. Theater, and which is the, the the big theater in Chicago. And no relation. And right. yeah, exactly. And. Uh, and also, people in comedy, it just seems so much healthier. Because if you messed up on stage doing straight theater, you know, you'd come backstage and everyone, no one would look at you. They'd be looking at their mirrors going, how's it going out there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sounds kind of quiet out there. What's going on? Um, and, but, if, but if I messed up at the Second City, I could hear my friends shrieking with laughter at me right. through the silence right. that I was getting on stage. Right. My, I had a friend, Paul Danello. I have a friend named right. Paul Donello, who's my dearest uh, friend in the world, and he had a rule, because we, we were always trying to make it more comfortable for ourselves backstage, because Second City is a rat hole, and we would build our own little sections backstage where we'd put our stuff and hang our clothes, and we would build during the show. <laughs> and, and Paul's rule was, hammer on the laughs. <laughs> Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> that is great, stage yeah. direction. Mm-hmm. So, if you, would, if you were dying out there, mm-hmm. he'd start hammering. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd go, he'd go back, he'd look at you from the wings going, I, I don't know why you're not killing, I'm sorry, I thought that would get a laugh.
1: Now, what is it about that? I, I covered comedy for a long time, and uh, wh- what is it about when somebody's bombing on stage when they're, or when they're walking the room, as they say, that the, that the comedians who are standing in the back at the bar are, are out of their minds with laughter? What is it about failure?
0: <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about failure? I don't know. I don't know. You're just sticking your neck out there, and it's just... It's hilarious to see it just get chopped off. <laughs> I don't know, I could get into something really dry and boring about status shifts and banana peels. But let's just move on. Excellent.
1: Okay. Um, <clears throat> so obviously the career started taking off. You did, uh, you did uh, Dan Carvey show? You yeah, actually,
0: Paul and Amy and I got hired, We mm-hmm. do a diff- uh, along with Jody Lennon and, and a guy named Mitch Rouse, we did a show for HBO that was sold to Comedy Central called Exit 57. Mm-hmm. We did that for two years. And that went ash can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then... I barely repeated. Did uh, it? Barely repeated.
1: Yeah. Sometimes. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I, 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 people come up to me now and they say, Hey, you were on X-57. And I go, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. Because it was our first thing we tried to do on TV. Right. And, and you could drive just trucks through the gaps mm-hmm. in, in those scripts. Mm-hmm. And then I did the Dana Carvey show right. with uh, Robert Smigel, right. who's Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. He mm-hmm. was executive producer... And he um, again. I'll tell Robert that you enjoy the dog. Um, uh, and then he, he knew me from Second City, and he hired me to, to work there, and it really launched my career. That that show. Yes, and, and you did some stuff for TV Fun House, which is a, one of my favorite shows. Saturday TV Fun House. TV Brilliant. Fun House. Yeah. Well, we started doing the ambiguously gay duo on the Dana Carvey show. And you actually ace. got picked up from the airport, mm-hmm. driven to Sync Sound on uh, 10th Avenue in New York. I, you know, with my. Bags. I'm moving to New York to do the Dana Carvey show with my bags, put them down in the studio, and Robert said, Hey, um, read this. He's supposed to be a superhero, and he, he can't tell if he's gay. And that was the very first thing I did for that show. And so I'm, I'm Ace. You're Ace. On target. We'll be right there, Commissioner. Hold on to my belt buckle with your teeth, friend of <laughs> friends. This is Gary. He's my compadre. He's my chum. My lifetime companion. My cohort.
1: <laughs> and then you were uh you were also you did obviously one of the uh, fan favorite here, strangers with candy.
0: Right. Right after right after that uh yeah, we did uh, Paul and Amy and I uh wrote that. Right. That's
1: And I went three seasons on Comedy Central. Right, yeah. Great work.
0: Thank you very much. It Um, was was, uh, interesting to work on.
1: We talked briefly backstage about the sort of the diversity of the crowd,
0: the crowd that likes The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, and the crowd that liked Strangers with Candy. Right, yeah. I can usually tell who the Strangers with Candy people are and who like The Daily Show Colbert Report people. In what way? The Daily Show Colbert Report people still have their eyebrows. (laughs) And the Strangers with Candy people go, I love that show, it's so real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, if somebody went back who's a fan now, and they've only known you for The Daily Show or The yeah. Rapport, if they went back and they rented uh, Strangers with Candy, I mean, is, is there is there, do you see, do
0: you, and also to yourself, do you see sort of the, the, the continuity yeah, exactly, from when you started. Uh, strangers with Candy, we wrote, is the thing between like, the work I do now and the work I did then, is that I try to be as wrong as possible <laughs> at every juncture. And in Stranger with Candy, it was making every wrong moral choice. Every character was as selfish as we could write them and was put in moral dilemmas, and they had to make the wrongest choice possible. <laughs> all of them. Right. All of them. There were no heroes. Um, except maybe or- Orlando Potoboy, her Filipino friend. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or Tammy Nut, And... And it was an exhausting way to write, actually It was like sort of hard on the old heart to write it right. that way for three years and and now I, I, I know nothing about what I talk about. I, you know I, now I play I am a a, a well intentioned poorly informed <laughs> high status idiot right <laughs> right you know well a truthiness a truthiness that 's what it 's about is you don 't need to know anything you 're talking about you need to Feel like you know what you're talking about. (laughs) And you need to feel like what you're saying, doing, and espousing is the right thing because it is certainty that America responds to, not fact. Right. (laughs) And I think what kills liberals is their ability to look at their own positions and say, I could be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So they've got to stop doing right. that. No wavering. Right. Exactly. They've got to stop acting like philosophy majors.
1: Well, once Strangers with Candy was done, and as we, here we are moving through the career here, you were off for about a year before you got on the Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I find interesting is that you had a baby at that point, and you were living in New York. Mm-hmm. You were kind of there. Uh, I think you have said before that you were kind of there. There was no going back. You were picking up some freelance work, we could call it, and... Um... Yeah, I was, I
0: was chopping wood in every direction. Right. I was doing anything. I was scrambling, because I'd worked in New York before, but I'd never not worked in New York before. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough place to not work.
1: Right. And, and with, with the family and, uh, and sort of unsure of where you're going, it was about a year's time. How was that for you to deal with, not only just as a performer, but just...
0: Well, I would go hide from my wife. To uh, to actually have an emotion, uh, uh, an honest emotional moment, <laughs> because I felt like I couldn't actually like pull at my hair in front of her and go, "What am I doing?
2: <laughs> this is never going to work."
0: You wanted um, to remain stoic. It was yeah. Well, I didn't want her to know that I was shattering inside. And um, darling, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's a lovely woman. She could tell anyway, yeah. but mm. she she was, she was humoring me. Right. Um, it was it was tough. You know, New York's a tough place to to you know the money just whips out of your pockets and you know we had a baby and another baby on the way and and no job and mm. i don't know how else to describe that in a darker way right and and, and it, exactly <laughs> and i had chosen acting as
1: my profession <laughs> well when the daily show came along one of the one of the things i've noticed you said in the past is that you were you were really not um either not either aware of it or really that interested in the daily show I was
0: not interested in the show i had seen it once or twice didn't for it that much. This is
1: with uh, Craig Kilborn, was the Right. Mm-hmm.
0: It wasn't so much as Craig, because Craig was a fine performer, right. but they hadn't found their way in the mm-hmm. show when I'd watched it. And I had actually, I was so desperate for a job that someone at the Dana Carvey show, after it had been canceled, someone who had helped them cast it, was having a conversation with someone at ABC News, because ABC News, Good Morning America, was trying to do something to compete that with that damn window over at the Today Show. <laughs> And they said, I know, we'll we'll put correspondents out in the field and they'll kind of be funny and they'll be our window on America. And someone called me up and said, we've heard that you kind of look, you know, normal in a Brooks Brothers suit but are a comedian. How would you like to try to do this? And I said to myself, that sounds like a terrible idea. And I said to them, that sounds like a fabulous idea. And I went and I went and I did it. And for briefly, I think it was actually I worked officially two months. I worked for ABC News right. as a correspondent, where more Americans get their news than any other source. <laughs> and and I you know and I worked for Good Morning America specifically because they just shipped over from entertainment to the news division. And boy, I did a poor job for them. And they they and they poorly used me. They didn't want me to be funny. They wanted me to be funny like a weatherman is funny. Oh, like. Like uh, Nothing wrong with weathermen, but they quip, weathermen quip. Right. They generally don't do uh, satire, and <laughs> they, don't, they don't do like, really biting takes on, right. like, uh, on, on stationary fronts, and, and so they didn't like anything I pitched. Right. And then at the time, my agent happened to also uh, represent the woman who started the, the Daily Show, Madeline Smithberg, and she said, well, why don't you go talk to them? And I went, great, now I'm a reporter. <laughs> And then I went over there. It was a a complete day job. But then I I met them, and I actually was doing Strangers at the same time. Right. And, um, And I actually started with The Daily Show when Craig was there, did a few pieces, left for three years to do Strangers, and I came back uh, it Strangers went off the air in two thousand, and I came back for the end of the two thousand campaign mm-hmm. and then and then there was John and it was a completely different beast yeah different show it was
1: uh, uh, and also an improved show dramatically improved and and that's and well it had a different, complete, had a, a completely
0: different point of view
1: sure, and which dovetailed nicely with your ABC work. you were now or sort of a, a reporter in the field right yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> for people who didn 't see that that was quotations around reporter uh, the daily show really i mean especially since well since two thousand but really took off. It would be sort of a cultural touchstone. That, that campaign
0: was great for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no, there was no better <laughs> story anyone could ever write about, I think, because it concerned everyone. It was unprecedented and no one died. Right. And I just don't ever think we'll get those three it together. It was a dream. Yeah, it was fantastic.
1: Now, on The Daily Show, you've, you've sort of perfected this character and um, it's interesting because you were sort of you, you, the other other people had come before you and became, and gone on to fame from Whitney Brown, uh, <laughs>
0: right. Whitney Brown and Brian Unger mm-hmm. and Beth Littleford were the three people who were there before me. Right, and then uh, others came.
1: Were you looking at that like, now as something that was launching? Pad?
0: you think, hey, people are starting to watch
1: this show. I'm going to do the best that I can because you carved something out for yourself. Obviously well, after
0: 2000, when the 2000 campaign, you know, the the, the night that Gore conceded, and we. Finally got to do that material we've been writing for 32 days or however long it was right. something like that right 32 days. It, um, when we finally got to do that that material, we, it was such an just an orgy of fun to to uh, to, to finally release all that built up uh, comedy. I turned to John right after like as the credits were rolling because I did the last piece on the show that night with him, and I said, "There's just there's not a better job in America." Right, you know than what we're doing right now. How much fun this is. And then I just realized, well, I don't want to leave the show. I would know, kind of thought of it as uh, a place I would stay for a little while. But at that point, I realized I just I couldn't imagine having more fun. Like, right. I didn't have ambition beyond what we were doing. And mm-hmm. I think all of us kind of felt like that after the campaign. And I think that's one of the reasons we've had success, is that no one wants to leave. Right. You know, I, I, I was hesitant to do this show, even though it's a great opportunity for me, because I love that show, and John's a great guy to work
1: for. Were you worried at all that uh, the comparison would be that uh, the Daily Show was sort of like uh, uh, Friends and you would be Joey? Were you worried about that?
0: I was kind of worried that it would be the Daily Show was Mash and I would be after Mash, oh. the Jamie Farr yeah. Uh, vehicle. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, sure. I was afraid that I'd completely screw the pooch. Right. That I'd be given this opportunity, and I would toss away everything that I'd worked for years to kind of that people look. I was afraid that people would realize I'm a fraud. Right. <laughs> and that it was only the context of the Daily Show that, that gave anything you know I did right. both humor, satire, or, you know, or, or or validity topically or anything like that. So, yeah, I was terrified.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's interesting, too, because at that point, uh, The Daily Show had really, at that point, I think, reached a level of beyond what We were changing said, the world, is what you're saying. Absolutely. <laughs> Kingmakers. The cliche is that people, young people, quote-unquote, in America are getting their news from The Daily Show, and that, that was worrying people. But what it became yeah, was... Yeah, I wonder, if they were getting the news from someplace, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, But it became, even more than that, it was people who were getting their news from a lot of places, but going there for a spin that ended up being a little bit more real than what they were watching on
0: cable news. Yeah, I think people were just going, I I think when people said they got their news there from, you know, more more young people were getting their news from any other place. Mm. I've worked for two places where more people get their news from any other place. (laughs) One of them's got to be wrong. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Well, when you made that, uh, you know, at that, at that point, your career on uh, The Daily Show was was really sealed. And when the spin off came, obviously, we talked about your worries there. Uh, what went into the thinking of it? I know that John is an executive producer as, you, as well as you. Uh, to make it a similar but a wholly different beast, because you were talking, The Daily Show sort of skewers the daily headlines, the news, and you kind of go after the media itself. Is well, one questions? of the things that
0: keeps The Daily Show fresh, I think, is because. It's a shadow of, not, not only it reflects the news stories of the day, but it's also a shadow of what's happening within the news. And the news is very mercurial these days. It's mm-hmm. constantly changing what its style is in order to get one up on the other person. And I don't mean graphically, but I mean in terms of personality and what they value in the personalities and how much they create cults of personality. I um, before we had the cult of personality with, you know, uh, Cronkite. When I was a kid, like Cronkite and Frank Reynolds and, and uh, John Chancellor. I kind of, as a child, thought, I want to talk like John Chancellor. Yeah,
1: there's some of that in you.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, that was a cult of personality because that was it. Those were the personalities. But now they, they want the same kind of, kind of cult, so they amp it up on purpose. So anyway, that's constantly changing in news. And uh, the, the Daily Show is a reflection of a certain type of news that still exists. What we think of as more of like a headline news or informational news. But the really popular things in news are no longer those shows. Like the big shows in news are things like Hannity and Combs or O'Reilly or Scarborough or even like you know Anderson Cooper or Lou Dobbs or before while he's still on the air, um Aaron, Aaron Brown. Brown. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are all personality shows. And to a to a greater or lesser extent, they're not about the news. They're about what this person thinks of the news and how he will present the news. And they are unabashedly, regardless of whatever catchphrases they use, about spin. And so we thought, well, let's let's just do one of those shows because that's as di- you know that would be as different from the Daily Show as O'Reilly is from Brian Williams, you know, uh, six o'clock news on right. NBC.
1: And, and when you made this leap, and obviously um, she came out of the gate strong; they renewed you pretty quickly. But and one of the things that you were going after, obviously, was sort of the O'Reilly. But you have other people that you were. Sort of yeah, he's the easiest thing
0: to reference because he's the—he's by far the most popular. He destroys everybody in cable. Ask him, he'll tell you. Right. <laughs> I'm kicking your ass.
1: But too, when you when you <laughs> when you launch the rapport, uh, what I thought was fascinating about it was that uh, sort of the behind-the-scenes element of the show was that it was—it's uh, a work in progress. It's still a work in progress. And you came out of the gates, You right off the bat, you had um, certain elements that really worked, the, the word. The word, yeah. And uh, congratulations on truthiness being the word of the year. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the American Dialect Society uh, chose it, and I'm, I've always been a big fan of theirs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Says some really good things about them. And as AP, apologize now for the blundering on the... Uh, that was the most wonderful thing. One of the things we've been trying to do with the show is to try to create a persecution complex for me. <laughs> the fact that like, you know, I don't get, I don't want I don't any awards for the things I say. You know, a lot of people out there don't want me to say this stuff. A lot of people out there don't get it and they'd like to see me fail. And when the AP wrote an article saying that the American Dialect Society had chosen these are people who choose like, you know, Y2K or iPod or Chad as the word of the year. Um, these are the Wordanistas. And when they chose truthiness, I was thrilled. Until I read the art, the article, and it at no point mentioned that I pulled that word out of my keister on October seventeenth, <laughs> you know, in a, in a fit of panic. And and I was at first dismayed, and then I was thrilled. And I'm like, I've got an enemy. I've now I've got a real life enemy that I can talk about on the show. Like half of this whole week will write itself because of the this gift the AP gave me, and. uh because the greatest thing about O'Reilly is that he is the biggest thing in cable news and the man makes, I kid you not, he makes like $62 million a year, and yet, hmm. I just do it for you people and I get <laughs> a lot of hell for it. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. A man can only do so much. He can only take so much attacks and I'm always being misrepresented. So I didn't win a... So I didn't win a Peabody, it was a Polk, they're both good. Well, one of the I, and, so, and so this, this gift, mm. the AP not reporting, it was a wonderful gift because we'd love to create this whole soup that the show can swim in that's very solipsistic and self-involved and all about how, you know, you know, the the, the, the elites are out right. there, to, they're out to get me.
1: Right. Well, these, this character that you've created, I thought, one of the scary parts that must have been for you moving into the show was that on The Daily Show, it's, it's, it's snippets, it's headlines, whatever. Right. But on The Rapport, it's you. And it's you from essentially All beginning me, to baby. end. All me, baby. Were you worried that two things? A, that you could pull that off for 30 minutes, or that it would like,
0: at some point, sort of the arch snarkiness might get to be too much? Well, I, I thought that people would absolutely hate me. Mm-hmm. Because right now, on The Daily Show, I act as a counterpoint to John. Right. And on this show, we've had to do things to take me away from just merely kind of uh, being wrong or, or stupid or ill-informed and right. come up with, like, games. Right. Um, things like The Threat Down or Tip of the Hat, Wag of the Finger mm. or the movies that are destroying America or... Balls uh, for kids. Balls for kids. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I've also had to drop... I mean, the character has different... He's, it's a sliding scale of intensity. Like when a guest comes on, it depends on who they are. Right. Um, you know, if it's Neil deGrasse Tyson from the Hayden Planetarium, you know, one of the you know East Coast Ivy League educated people who tells us water or is or is not a planet. <laughs> Where do they get off? Um, I can go like great guns at him. Right. But Koki uh, Roberts. Uh, Gentle as a lamb.
1: Right. Well, we have we have tonight a clip, a second clip uh, for everybody tonight, and this is where you do break off. You move behind the desk, and you, there's some there's some breaking one of the guests in studio. Yes. Okay. We have a clip for everybody. Fantastic. We're gonna open the mm-hmm. gates here. These are
0: terrible seats to watch. I know. This. <laughs>
3: Master, I learned a lot And the second part of the question uh, I don't hate the truth. Okay. Uh, why do you hate the truth? What? <laughs> uh, uh, I love like
0: the truth. It's facts and not stand
3: up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was your favorite product you've ever worked on, and would you rather have Saddam on the
0: The Republicans saw it and they thought it was a lie, and the Democrats saw it and they think it is a lie. That doesn't... You see, you're dividing our nation. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
3: <laughs> 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 the,
0: uh, you know, I have such thick layer of American laid down, no, 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 I no. can take a topsoil layer of French. <laughs> 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 I just wouldn't speak to America. I'll answer that
3: you're not pronouncing a T at the end of the no, American, no, no, American
0: word report. No, we're saving up all those unpronounced T's, uh, and we're donating it to Katrina. Oh, my Ha ha ha! Now that's
1: obviously a great bit there's been a bunch of that um I, I'm curious as to when you were putting the show together um and it was not and, and so much burden was on you it's such a plate mm-hmm. spinner to to mm-hmm. to do all that and and you broke it up with this right. and now you found these other vehicles to right. to break it up is this is the rapport now that
0: it's been renewed is it still going through some transitions right now Oh abso- sure absolutely mm-hmm. I mean we uh we're constantly looking for new games we're mm-hmm. constantly looking for ways to get the camera off of me mm-hmm. because i um the calcium comes out of my bones by the <laughs> end by the end of thursday night i mean it's better for the audience to have a relief you right. know from just me doing it down the pipe I and mean, the the interviews which for me was the most Nerve-wracking part of the show when I started this is the part that I look forward to most right. because I get to not look right into the camera and talk right. for just a minute, and I don't know what's going to happen because we don't plan anything with a guest. I just backstage I say, uh, um, you know, I'm a professional idiot, right? <laughs> and they say I've seen the show, and and then and I say let's well, let's have some fun out there, and that's it. And so mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen, and so we're. we're Constant, like recently we did something uh, trying to explain to children why New Jersey had a bear hunt where 100, 267 <laughs> bears were killed in, in five days and, and uh, you know because kids think bears are great you know with the Winnie the Pooh and the Paddington Bear and the Country Bear Jamboree and all that uh, you know all that kid stuff mm-hmm. and bears. so we had kids pose questions to hunters and we just put them together I saw it yeah, yeah. That's great. And we called it, you know, Stephen Colbert's balls for kids. <laughs> this week, bears. So one of the things we want to do is we want to use that as an ongoing thing where we juxtapose. By the way, the kids aren't in the same room with the hunters. We all do it <laughs> ex post facto. We're not actually scandalizing children. And um, it just looks like we are. And we want to do that, where we, you know, we juxtapose mm. innocence against, you know, legitimate but questionable adult behavior. And... Um, and and you know and that's a that's a way to not involve me on the show. Right. Well, constantly. Well, you know, you got an idea. Please tell me because okay. backstage. Well, you
1: know, one of the things that uh, you had said before, previously before is you, you don't understand why people, whether it's a tragedy or, or or they're just trying to get an agenda, why would anyone anyone would talk to the press? Because it's sort it's sort of this trap you can't get out of. There's no, no good. Well, there's absolutely
0: no reason for you to ever talk to the press. Right. Unless right. you have accidentally talked to the press already once and you need to redeem your character. Like, I can understand talking to Larry right. King or something like that or Barbara Walters to try to make up for something else you said in the press. Why then,
1: and this is something I think
0: everybody probably has on their mind
1: if you have seen The Daily Show, two questions here. One, why would anybody ever talk to somebody from The
0: Daily Show? I don't know. Us in 60 minutes. I don't know why they would talk to us. <laughs>
1: And closer to the rapport, I mean, these people have seen the show now. When they come on to the, this interview thing, not only is the first thing you do is sort of keep them in the dark and, and belittle their star status, but when you, in a way.
0: How? How do you know, You're coming out, you're high-fiving. you came you're, off like a, smelling like a he rose. He did, he did come off well. Uh, but when, sometimes when they come out, there are certain guests where... Not everybody knows what to expect on the show, yeah. I mean, this is not Charlie Rose. I'm not right. going to, like, show a clip of your thing and then, and, and then ask you... Um, how would you think of it? Yeah, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. I don't necessarily know what I'm going to do and you know until the the moment comes. So, yeah, we have a little trouble getting guests, yeah. you know. <laughs> and well, people have canceled at the last <laughs> minute having seen the guests, you know, the night before. Right. You know, they've come down with things. Yeah, suddenly yeah. sick. Well, we saw a clip uh,
1: of of what you did on the Colbert show and also uh, um, uh, the Rapport but you've also incorporated kind of what you were doing on The Daily Show, and we also have a clip of that. You're interviewing a congressman in this.
0: okay, right. What, what's different about... <laughs> I'll tell you what's different about it after, I okay. guess. Of course, Virginia's 8 doesn't have the market cornered on patriotism, but it does have the patent. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office which once every 10 years patches a new vaccine and once every 10 minutes patents the owl optical light the amazing roll of piano or the heartwarming doggy stick.
1: and what invented
0: mind keeps coming up new ways to serve the people of this district it's none other than eighth district representative jim moran this poor man's ted kennedy <laughs> his fighting and his actual fighting in 1995, Moran exchange blows outside the House chambers with now disgraced Representative Duke Cunningham, the corrupt Congressman's Ted Kennedy. <laughs> 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 he recently, I a chance to sit down with Congressman Moran in his office in Washington. Describe Jim Moran in three words. Uh, a, a, a regular guy. Uh, that's two. That's 3A and. No <laughs>
1: So you, that's better known in district. There's 400 more of those to come, or something like that. Uh, we've
0: done 10, so there are 400 and uh, 424 <laughs> left for us. Yeah. You gonna get through those? God, I hope so. <laughs> we're gonna um, we're gonna turn the
1: house lights up and open it up to uh, the crowd for ask some questions. I'm sure you guys are full of questions. Let's particularly keep them to the, uh, the rapport if we can. Yeah. Let's try uh, to keep it on my work. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that uh, before we and there's somebody there are mic monitors. So before you stand up and uh, Wave around. Look for a mic monitor. Make sure you're mic'd, and then we'll move on. Uh, before we get to them, I want to yes. ask: uh, Have you really annoyed your wife with the finger pointing?
0: Uh, I don't do it around her. You didn't. You didn't perfect that in the house, where no, you just, No, no, no. Okay. I'm a, afraid of her. Okay. <laughs> Are you here? Are you here?
3: Uh, Mr. Colbert, you before you were rudely interrupted, you were about to say the difference between the interview and the political.
0: Oh, this. right, yes. Uh, before the curtain opened, I was going to say something. <laughs> 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 but I guess whoever runs the curtain knows better. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say is that this is the difference between like the Tim Robbins and this, and why this is more like The Daily Show, is that this is an edited interview. Is that while the major beats happened like that, they were ordered for scenic purposes, you know? <laughs> I had a want. Get him to punch me. And then we'd done the entire interview, actually, just really just to kind of, you know, get his blood up. And then um, at the end, my producer said, Congressman, would you mind taking a punch at Steven? You know, it would be a fake punch. And he said, sure. We'd actually packed <laughs> the cameras away and because and, and, my producer said, it would, I think it would really end it nicely it actually looked like he punched him. And I said, that's just too huge. We could never do that. You know, it's just not going to look right. And he goes, let's just get it just in case it fits. And sure, sure, sure as hell it did. But that, the difference being is that that is a manufactured three minutes and the Tim Robbins one is real. The, 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 the beats actually happened.
1: Yeah, the, um, the comedy
0: writers, kind of the unsung um, heroes behind the scenes that don't get a lot of uh, yeah. you know, publicity. I, you... had to, I had to get some of those. <laughs> can you... Uh... <laughs> I improvise it. What can I say? <laughs> I open yeah. my mouth and God speaks. <laughs> C-
1: can you name a couple of your favorites that, you know, you think guys that are just geniuses behind the scenes that... Uh... Who work on my show? Well, no, no. All, all of joking. them, I mean,
0: really, I have, I have, we, did, for the first, for the first, uh, for this fall, we had six writers. They're all fantastic. Um, and, uh, comedy writers, I mean, people who started, you know, people who gave me my start were comedy writers, like Robert Smigel who I said, who wrote The Ambiguously Gay Duo and he produced The Dana Carvey Show and he's triumphed the insult Comic Dog and, and he, does, he really does the cartoons on Saturday Night Live. He's the guy who really gave me my big break and he's a comedy writer. and So he's a, he's a hero of mine. And Steve Martin started off as a comedy writer and he was very influential. I mean, his character is, that original character of his, which he doesn't do anymore, but that guy was a complete idiot who thought he was very high status and I'm sure that's very influential in what I do.
2: Strangers with Candy the movie's
0: been in my Netflix queue for an awful
2: long time. I wonder if there's an interesting interesting story behind the delay in its release.
0: No, there's a boring story behind the delay of the release. Um, uh, Warner bought it and then decided they didn't want to release it, I think. And then so we bought it back. I warned you, Excellent. it was a boring story
2: two
1: parts, I guess. Um, while you're in San Francisco, are you here long enough to do any on-site work or anything while you're here with... You R- mean, like interview school? people? Yeah, like any, anything for the Colbert Report. Oh, uh, no, no. Oh, okay. And my second part is, um, uh, but politically,
2: how active are you or um, what do you read if... I know you don't read books, but, you know, what
3: leaflets <laughs> might you <laughs> read? <in? laughs>
0: um, I'll read anything near the toilet. I'll read... Um, <laughs> Uh, methylparaben is in a lot of shampoo <laughs> I noticed that on a lot of the labels
1: this question comes from the balcony
2: don't take this the wrong way because I'm a big fan
0: but I hate your work <laughs>
2: um, Do you ever get really embarrassed acting like such a jackass? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: I force myself to do publicly humiliating things every so often. Um, My my brother Jay, when I was a kid, used to do an imitation of a squirrel going to bathroom while it walked. Because he, 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 he swore that there was a squirrel that was in this park near where he went to college that would do this. It would walk and kind of go to the bathroom at the same time, sort of leaving a trail behind itself. And my sister Lulu would get so hideously embarrassed when he would do it in public that to me it is the gold standard of the humiliating thing to do in public. <laughs> so at least once a year I forced myself to do this in a public place where... But by public place, I mean like a street corner, like crossing the street. <laughs> and just so I would, so just so I'll get over the fact that like certain behaviors cannot be done in public because there's really no behavior that can't be done in public as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. And so I have to because I was raised by perfectly nice people, and I've married a wonderful, perfectly nice person, and um, uh, but you just have to leave all that behind to do what I do, and so. So, so the squirrel would the squirrel would do this. You have to imagine, you have to imagine a big bushy tail, like this, which is up and kind of twitching the whole time. And the squirrel, would kind of do? It <laughs> kind of leave this tail behind itself. Once a year, like you know, cross with the light on a street corner <laughs> doing that and don't th- not do it, you gotta do it the whole time and it'll, uh, it's fantastic therapy for, th- for those people who are listening on the radio they miss a good thing too
1: bad yep.
2: um, when you go back to South Carolina what do they think about your show back
0: there? I'm, I'm really happy, they, they, they kinda like it I think, I think, um, I mean, I, I suppose you mean the, the most conservative elements in South Carolina. First of all, my wife and I, I, I'm smart enough to marry a girl from my hometown. My wife and I are from the coast, which is comparably speaking, you know, not, it's not upcountry, it's not Bob Jones University. You know, black and white people can hold hands legally. <laughs> um, but, uh, the most conservative people that I knew back home occasionally had issues with thing things I did on The Daily Show, but my character on the new show, I'm very pleased, uh, very surprised and pleased to find that my most conservative friends are thrilled by the conservative things that the character says. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe it's just sort of like wanting to kind of like the thing their friend is saying. They just accept those things at face value. You know, like, my war on the war on Christmas. They're like, good for you. We should be saying Merry Christmas more. They just accepted it as if I meant the entire thing. Which I do.
1: This question comes from the balcony.
2: Hi. Hi. Um, th- this is uh, it's kind of a narcissistic question, I guess.
0: But what do I feel about me?
2: Yeah. But uh, it, it has to do with um, the development of a, a, the character that you do, which is basically a a really straight-looking white guy. Yes. Who says um, out of character th- or things that are perceived as very completely out of character for a straight-looking white guy and such as what? Um. Well, I you know we'll just I, I was gonna just I ass-
0: love black man yeah. meat. Like, w- w- like, I was gonna, what's out of character for a straight-looking white guy?
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say like I was going to assume you knew what I meant.
0: No, but, but but my character doesn't say that. Pardon? But my like, I'm just curious. What 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 do I say that's out of character? Because I could use a note.
2: Well, well, I guess maybe that's that's kind of the that's kind of the crux of it is that is there. What you say? It's essentially. In character, what's presumed to be in character for uh, a white, a straight looking white person. Yes. I- except you kind of, you know, run with it a little further. Um, uh, I
0: so embrace my straight whiteness that I come off as ethnic gay, is what you're saying? <laughs> <clears throat> well,
2: I know. Thank wondering, you. <laughs>
0: I've never been so honored. I think the character, one thing I would say is that the character is so... he lives a completely unexamined life. And so he... happily so, because he can, he can indict himself with what he says and constantly say things that prove the falsity of his beliefs without knowing it. So uh, that, that lets you say some truly su- stupid stuff.
1: I just want to interject there on that, on that one. You, you once said that uh, uh, the job that you do calls for, for, quote, an obnoxiousness that is not necessarily in my nature. Is it hard for you to do that?
0: Uh, it's getting easier.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mr. Colbert, I notice that you and our uh, ambassador to the United Nations share a mannerism. And I'm wondering who the glasses. <laughs> who did it first?
0: Uh, my brother Jim. <laughs> that's that's who I got it from. But I would love a big bushy mustache like both. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice, ladies?
3: <laughs>
0: it tickles. <laughs> he should just go ahead and wax it into a handlebar mustache and go. <laughs> I've got you now, UN.
2: Hi, Mr. Colbert. Merry Christmas to you.
0: Merry Christmas. Hey, anybody can say it during the Christmas season. Exactly. It takes courage to say it now.
3: <laughs> it's true. Thank you. Um, today
2: is St. Felix's feast day, who I'm sure you already I know. I
0: absolutely know what you're saying. He's,
2: he's the patron saint against lies. Uh, against, yes, against lies, which is true. Which and is
0: different I, than truth. Exactly. <laughs> And I, if I didn't had... lie to you. I just didn't tell you the truth. <laughs> yes. And I was just wondering
2: if you had any plans to celebrate the occasion for special.
0: Um, uh, yeah, I I, 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 plan to uh, only uh, only lie through omission. <laughs>
1: this is our last question.
0: It's gonna be great. They always save the best one for last.
2: Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> you mentioned that you don't prep the interviews, but the Stone Phillips piece was incredible. Well, that was different. The interview for
0: yes. Stone Phillips was unprepped, but that bit um, that we did was something he and I had actually... We'd, we did it at an a, a autism benefit um, about six months before. And I begged him to come on the show and to do that for the very, for the very first show because he, more than anyone else, is my stylistic hero <laughs> for a reporter. Because I mean, he and Geraldo, because. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you get a really good package when you put those two guys together. You get, you know, like a nice manly neck and and, and assurance and kind of uh, sexiness. And Geraldo, you get this mission where you're going to save the world one factual error at a time. (laughs) And so, but the fact that uh, Stone was willing to come on and do my first show just felt like, you know, a bottle of champagne against our prowl. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks for everybody coming out. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Colbert. Thank you.